I remember clearly that was the turning point of my life because I ran out of the savings that I had and the phone was not ringing. People weren't buying homes, people weren't selling homes. And I parked outside this specific restaurant. I was just about to get out of my car and I have the resume in my hand and I start talking out loud to myself. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? You're not gonna freaking give up right now. Like this is the moment where you're gonna make it happen. Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcast, the Titans of Real Estate. The show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. In this episode, Santiago Arana. Thank you to our sponsor, Bow Concept. I'd like to introduce a very special guest to the Diggs Influencer Podcast, Mr. Santiago Arana. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation to be part of this. I'm very excited. It's always good to see you. Yes, likewise. And where do we start with your accolades, Santiago? I mean, I want to just read off a quick list, but your credentials are impeccable and your growth in this industry and what you've done in a relatively short amount of time. It's been 15 years-ish, right? Yes. Is truly remarkable. Thank um, you. In the last 12 months, you sold $468 million in volume. That's correct. And that's the size of a medium brokerage by itself, <laughs> right? So it's wild. Last year, you did $420 million, And the year before, in 2016, you did $305 million. So somehow you managed to continue to grow these ginormous numbers year after year. You lifetime $2 billion in sales. You're ranked number six on real trends in the country. It's a huge fact. Been top 250 agents in the country for seven consecutive years. Congrats on all your success. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very humbling. I'm very grateful about everything that you just read. <laughs> you should be. That's awesome. So you joined the agency in 2014 as a principal and partner. Yes. So before we get into that, tell us sort of your story. Like, where did you grow up? Take us way back to the beginning. <laughs> All right. So I think I might have joined the agency actually in 2013, but it okay. doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Bolivian native. I was born in Bolivia. That's South America for the ones that might not know. I studied business. I grew up in a middle class family. Then I went to university, studied business administration and marketing. I was in a rush always to get out and start making money. So I finished the business administration plus the marketing degrees and about five years, both of them. So at the age of 22, I was up and running and thought, okay, I'm ready now. And then when I went out there to the world to try to get a job and find out that, you know, it doesn't really come that easy. You don't start by making tons of money. It was an interesting thing to see. And I think that probably a lot of young people get to experience that, right? You go out and you got to start working and you don't really know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like, okay, I have this degree now, but what do I do? So, you know, there was not really a connection with what I wanted to do with what I was doing. And the situation of my country was very hectic and political, social ways that I was not interested in being part of that. There were a lot of killings and a lot of basically, you know, instability from every point of view. Always been a, you know, person looking for success and build a life and be an example for my younger sister and people that I had around me. And I was just very clear at that point that to me, to be able to 
do the things that I wanted to do, to be able to drive the cars I want to drive, to be able to see the places that I want to see and have the life that I wanted to have. It was going to be very difficult to do it in a country like Bolivia unless I was going to join to be a drug dealer or a corrupt politician, which are both <laughs> careers that are very short-term that I'm not interested in. Yeah. So at that point, when the crisis happened in Bolivia, this is 2002, they call it the Black, I think it was Black February or something like that. The police and the army tried to kill the president and they kill each other. And there were like over 100 people that died that day, half a block from my office. And that's the day I said, okay, I'm out. Called my dad, I applied for a scholarship and I won the scholarship to do a master's degree in finance. The fortunate, I won't say I'm fortunate because that's what it led me to be here. I was only taught in English and I didn't speak a word of English at the time. And Hebrew, actually, because the scholarship was in a kibbutz in Israel. And I didn't speak any word of that either. So I thought that if I'm going to go, you know, I told my dad, maybe I'll go and do a master's degree. And then I come back with a new language, with a new degree, which will put me probably in a better position of getting a better job than where I am right now. That'd be a good thing to do and give it a break. Probably the country's going to come down a little bit, settle, things will be better. I'll disappear for two years, come back better professional, a better person. So he agreed and we made the decision that learning English probably will be more useful in Bolivia than Hebrew. So I found out through my mother that she had a cousin that I probably only met once when I was a baby. She was living here in the United States. So she called her and she invited me to crash in her couch for about eight months. And I was in Santa Barbara, which was great. I went to <laughs> school there. Be anywhere so else, but, I know, uh, yeah. So I remember like in the airport, like in the Miami airport, I stopped by there because I had friends that were actually going to college in Miami. I was like, yeah, if I'm going there, maybe go through Miami and stop there, hang out with them, party for a few days and then go to see my aunt. And I stopped and I remember when I was coming in, the immigration guy, you know, started talking to me in English, although he was Cuban and he speak perfect Spanish. He was trying to give me a hard time. I had a letter prepared for my aunt in Santa Barbara that I just basically handed to him. And I don't really know what it said at the time, but it must have said, you know, where I was going to leave, the address, Santa Barbara. And the guy basically looked at me and he's like, Santa Barbara, wow. And he just let me through. And I was like, I wonder why he made such a big deal of Santa Barbara. To me at the time, you know, I was like, couldn't be going to, I don't know, I mean, yeah, Neymar, yeah. somewhere in the middle of the United States, Santa Barbara, it didn't make a difference for me. It was just coming to learn English and having the experience was exciting enough. Not until I woke up in Santa Barbara and I was like two blocks from the ocean. I was like, oh, this is really nice. So when I came here, you know, I had that free couch to stay and food that my aunt would provide, but I only brought $120. So I ran out of it really quick. You know, basically I went to ask her, do you have like you know, $20, I want to go out and I want to buy a beer or something. And she said, go and get a job. I was like, what? <laughs> That's not part of the plan. Right. You know, I was like, okay, but what am I going to get a job? It's like, well, you don't speak English. You don't have a lot of choice, you know? So kind of went looking for stuff to do, whatever. And I got a job as a busboy. And, what uh, year was this, Santiago? 2003. Okay. Good. Yeah, this is May 2003. I was going to an adult education at night. I was studying from probably 6 to 11 o'clock at night, taking the bus back. And then I was busing tables in the day. And I did that for about three, four months. I picked up the language fairly quick and I graduated to waiter where I was making more money and I was communicating with people. I was meeting friends and stuff like that. So it became something really, I was excited because I was making now a good amount of money to kind of hang out because that's what I was doing. I was now learning the English that I was communicating and all that. And then I started to think about like maybe staying here might be an option. I don't know if I want to go to Israel in 2003. I think that was in the middle of the war. And I was like, hey, do I go there or should I stay here? You know, and I was working in Montecito, going out to State Street with all the college people. Oh, I was yeah. single, I was 23. It was fun, right? So I kind of like started really thinking about, you know, if I stay here, what I'm going to do. And I had a cousin at the time that was doing loans. I hung out with him and he'll 
sit on his computer, work for two, three hours, make 10 grand and then go surfing and party. I was like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, what do you do? I mean, do you need to study for this or that? He's like, yeah, you study and you take a test and you get a license and you can do it, but you can take the same license and the same test and you can do real estate too. And I was like, what's real estate? And he's like, well, real estate is, and he explained it to me, right? I was like, well, in a million years, I thought I'm going to be doing real estate because in Bolivia it's not. And I, I think in most parts of the world and with specific locations, uh, being a real estate agent is not something that people look for as a career. And, mm-hmm. and very few places you can actually make a very good living or in a New York and L.A. and, you know, London or big places, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was very foreign for me at the time, but I understood. He said, you know, you have a good personality. You speak two languages now. And I think you do really good in real estate, better than loans. Loans is tedious and you're sitting on a computer and... So I was like, okay. So fast forwarding, you know, a year, I waited on this beautiful girl, Table, who is now my wife. I met her at the same restaurant that I was wearing, and she was living in, in Los Angeles. And, you know, I pursued her for like three months and kind of went away. She was not really interested in, you know, <laughs> really dating a Bolivian waiter that spoke half English at the time, I guess. And then a uh, few months later, my cousin, the same cousin that was the one that told me to get a real estate license, called me and said, let's go to LA. There's a party there. You want to go? I was like, sure. So we're driving here and I'm like, oh, I got to call that girl. So I called Kyle, my wife's Kyle, and I go, uh, hey, I'm coming to LA, blah, blah, blah. And she was like with his friends and we basically got together and... And that was the time where we started like dating, basically. And I was going back and forth, back and forth. And at that point in time, I was like, I got to move to LA because I really want to be with this girl. So in 2004, February, I want to say, January, I moved to LA. And I decided at that point that, you know, I definitely wanted to stay in the United States because now I'm in love and I don't want to leave this girl. And I said, okay, I need to do something. So I went and got my license. I also got my degrees translated into the equivalent of what in English is. And I started to drop resumes everywhere and trying to get a job in different companies. And for most part, you know, there were jobs that weren't exciting enough for me. I was making more money waiting tables because at this point now I was like waiting tables in very good restaurants in LA, you know, Lorangerie and places where I was like, yeah. you know, making some nights, two, three, four thousand dollars a night. Wow. So these jobs weren't really interesting at the time. And I was like, it's gotta be something else. That's when I got my license and I was like, okay, I see that people can really make a big living here. The sky is the limit. If there is one, two, three, four, five guys that are making more than a million dollars in commissions and there's no reason why I cannot do it. So that's how I kind of got into the real estate. And that's how I started. I went and got my license. I hung my license in a company in Beverly Hills and I started working there and kept working in the restaurant for about four years from 2004 until the beginning of 2008, just kind of compensating, you know, doing real estate in the daytime, working and making some cash to live. Uh, just about the beginning of 2008, I felt comfortable enough to where I could drop the restaurant and I can now just do real estate 100%, which was a very exciting moment of my life, you know? As I started to do really good, 2008, we got closer to October and shit hit the fan. And all of a sudden it became very difficult, you know, like the whole crisis and the collapse, the recession. So it's almost like, okay, I'm starting to do this. I dropped the restaurant and boom, you know? And it was a very interesting moment of my life. I remember clearly that was the turning point of my life because I ran out of the savings that I had and the phone was not ringing. People weren't buying homes. People weren't selling homes. It was very quiet. And I basically got to one day I woke up and I was like, shit, I'm going to have to just go back to the restaurant to kind of make some cash because this is not really going anywhere. At that point, we had our first child. He was two years old. My wife was pregnant again. I didn't really have more than 2,000 bucks in my bank account. And I said, okay, I got to do something. So I remember printing my restaurant tour waiter resume. And I drove to Venice 
and Abokini, there were a couple of restaurants that seemed to be places where you can make decent money. And I park outside this specific restaurant and I'm in my BMW 3 Series, I remember. And I'm just about to get out of my car and I have the resume in my hand and I start talking aloud to myself. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? It's mm-hmm. like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, you're not going to freaking give up right now. Like, this is the moment where you're going to make it happen. Yeah. And I never got out of my car and I wow. said, I'm going to go and eat sleep. I'm going to freaking push hard in real estate. Like no one is doing it right now. I'm nobody. The only guy that is opening houses Saturdays and Sundays every freaking weekend. I'm going to go out and put my signs at six o'clock in the morning. I'm going to do everything that is in my power. And I know that it's going to pay off. That's the moment that you get introduced to your other self, you know, the, yeah. the guy that, you know, that is inside you that says, you know what? We've had the same journey. Literally that year, 2008 was a turning point for me as well. I changed careers. I was in that state of, you know, what's next? I really wanted to reinvent myself and the economy was horrible, right? So it wasn't like it was a grand time to to be starting something. But I realized, you know, it's sort of the best time in the worst times to start or to double down, right? To get focused and go, hey, everyone's running for the fences. You know, everyone's panicking. If I can stay calm and focused, this is where I can expedite, you know, my growth or my career or whatever you're working on. And you find that? Absolutely. I mean, you can only see the light in the darkest moment. If everything is bright and you have all these good things happening, you might not make the right decisions. But when it's dark, that's the only time where you can actually differentiate where the light is. And those are very life-changing moments. I think. Yeah. When I started Digs in 2010, literally my first three appointments, which were with big you know, owners of brokerages and big hitters in the South Bay, the first three said, don't do it. Like, you seem like a nice guy, save your money. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to end well. And that made me even more determined right. to go, okay, well, thanks, but I'm crazy enough or ignorant enough to pursue this and do this. So, you know, it turned out well, but it, it also gave me a sort of a unique insight into, you know, how things are when things are bad. Right. You know, so tell me about when those years. So when you decided not to go into that restaurant and pursue, you know, mm-hmm. that again, tell me about those next couple of years, how that was. Yeah, well, it was tough, you know. I think that everybody looks at the success of a person and how great they're doing and where they're in life, but very few people actually look at all the failures and all the bad times and all the years of sacrifice and hard work and stress that you go through. I think that any big successful person from, you know, Henry Ford, Abraham Lincoln, I mean, you name it. I mean, like all of them fail multiple times. All of them have bad times. I mean, nobody says... Oh, Abraham Lincoln was so great because he was eating canned food for 10 years, you know? Everybody says, oh, what a great leader he was. So yeah, those two years were difficult, you know, until not about until 2011, actually, that things started to change for me a little bit. And it was because I was the guy out there working harder. I think that when people start feeling that, you know, okay, well, the crisis here is there, but we still need to move and do and leave, that they really saw me all the time that, you know, remember me. It's like, oh, that was the guy. That's the guy that's sitting every freaking Sunday. That's the guy with the signs everywhere. That's the guy, whatever. So being through that bad time and just pushing harder is what solidified my career. And as the market turned around in 2012, it just skyrocketed. It's kind of like an old adage, you know, like, what do they say? 80% of success is just showing up. And there's truth to that. Mm -hmm. There's truth to it. And just your proof of concept there, you know, um, showing up. So... Let me, first of all, I got I went to ask you when you were talking about your earlier, what's your Croatian tie? And I ask you because I'm married to one. So. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. So my mother is the Croatian side. 
Okay. Her grandparents moved from Yugoslavia, which was at the time. Four families end up moving from Yugoslavia to Bolivia and settle in Bolivia. So my mom's a second generation Bolivian, but full blood Croatian. Do you speak any? Size. No, I don't, unfortunately. Okay. I think that's kind of how I found out that I, I'm actually Jewish. I was raised Catholic and I found out not too long ago that because they came from Croatia, I think that these families were running away from something and they end up settling in Bolivia. You know, my mom said, it makes sense now because my grandpa always got upset when my grandma spoke the language and said, we cannot speak that language here. So they were almost like kind of hiding and they decided that we don't speak the language. We're Catholic now and we do this and we live this life because we're in survival mode. But yes, my mom is on both sides, on her mother and her father, Croatian. Last names are Krajasik, Bakotik. Croatian. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I was going to say Kakoste, but <laughs> you don't speak. All right. So let's go back. Tell me about your first sale in real estate. So my first sale was in 2005. I was working at a restaurant uh, on La Cienega called Bridge. They were the same owners of Koi. They opened this new restaurant across the street. And there was a waiter from Australia there that wanted to sell his condo in West Hollywood. He was gracious enough to allow me to do it while I was just starting. So he helped me with that and I sold the condo. I actually double ended it. I brought the buyer too. So it was, it was a nice. good way to start. So you got a nice check, <laughs> first check. It was good. It was a $420,000 condo and it was on Larrabee, I remember, between La Cienega and Sunset in a building there. It was great. It's interesting enough now that I'm dealing with a client that just bought the whole, almost block, they bought like three buildings and this building is one of them. Oh, wow. And he's thinking about involving me to help him develop these apartment buildings in there and have like a brand new 10 tower wow. building. <laughs> That's awesome. It's gonna come so full, full circle, circle yeah. right? That's awesome. What about your biggest sale? Well, the biggest sale is the one that I did last year in Montecito, I think. Well, one of the biggest one was 37 million. It was Ed Schneider's estate, passed away billionaire. He just passed away I mean, a couple of years ago. They own the Flyers, Philadelphia Flyers and the 76ers. That was 37 million, was the biggest, and since the only sale above $20 million in the last 10 years in Montecito. Wow. So that was a big sales from every point of view. The property was listed at the same price for about a year with local agents. When I took it, it didn't change the price more than half a million bucks and sold it in the first week. What do you think the difference was in that? I think it's a, a different combination of things. I think that this is a confirmation that relationships are important, not only with clients, but with agents. The property was listed in Santa Barbara, in the Santa Barbara MLS. They didn't really thought of reaching out, out that area because agents in Santa Barbara, you know, I guess they just, you know, Santa Barbara is kind of like a self-realized area where yeah, people little don't really have to sell, people don't really want to buy and they all buy from each other and they're there. Yeah. And I'm just guessing that that could be of like, I don't know what it is because you never know what it is. It's, it can be so many things, you know, it can be that the buyer of the property wasn't ready until the week I took over. And now that there's a new buyer that wasn't on the market before, uh, it could be that we do a lot more marketing and things at the agency than any other company, the way how we reach out to the world is a lot more compelling. It's proven when we put things on the market, it really gets in everybody's face. So I think when we listed it, you know, we put it really out there and it was actually an agent in Beverly Hills that basically picked up the phone, called me and said, hey, I want to show this as soon as possible. I was like, oh, that was quick. <laughs> <laughs> and we literally drove up there, showed it and it was done. So, you know, had a few substantial sales. I, as you know, I own a development company called Cutting Edge. So I started doing 
spec homes with a partner of mine. His name is David Herskovitz. And your first development was sold to someone famous and yeah. who we love. Yeah. On the Lakers. That's correct. <laughs> LeBron James. Yeah. And I didn't say him. that. You did. <laughs> so I just put it on the record. Yes. Record. Uh, yeah. No, it was an amazing house in Brainwood. It was the first big spec house that I did. I'm just happy to see that finish the way it is. Yeah, it came out nice. It was on our cover. Beautiful, gorgeous, yep. gorgeous home. Beautiful house. That's another substantial sale. You know, you have things like the one Sunset that I sold and 20 million multiple offers. I had five offers in the first week when people thought that I was nuts of listing something on Sunset Boulevard for 20 million. Gone. The one I sold to Lady Gaga in Malibu also was a great sale. It was the highest sale in the non-beach side of Malibu ever for 23, 24 million. And some Beverly Hills. You know, Beverly Hills Post Office, those have been the most substantial ones. So let me ask you, because you deal obviously with A-list clientele. Yes. And it's obviously different. A-list is different, right? Than non-A-list, yes. if you will. Do you think your upbringing, your humble beginnings, you know, your start, you know, the whole journey that you took us on, do you think that gives you a unique advantage because you're just a real person? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that people relate to the idea of the American dream of someone that works hard. I consider myself an honest person and everything's on the table and I'm very direct and sometimes people like it, sometimes people don't like it. And I think for the most part, people that they made it to the top, they appreciate that. They don't have time for BS. Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel a lot more comfortable and it feels that it's easier for me to talk to those individuals that made it to the top because I just got through it and they really appreciate that and they see that. Growing up in Bolivia in the middle class is not necessarily a super humble thing compared to what the life standards in the United States are. It is absolutely, I would be compared to a poor person here when the way how I grew up in Bolivia, but it's a much more simpler life. But, you know, my dad was a senator point on time. So although we didn't have a lot of money, we had good education. We were you know, within a society with a group of higher society, if you can call it, where, you know, we were exposed to different things. So I'm being always comfortable on dealing with people in the high end because I grew up with what the high end people would be in Bolivia at the time. Dated the granddaughters of the president and met, you know, diplomatic people and from different parts of the world. And I think that's just the way I was raised. So you had a comfort level going in that, hey, these are just yeah. regular people. Yeah. Sort and they of. are. Yeah. And no, they yeah, are. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's most important to these, you know, since we're speaking of A-list, like What's most important to them? Because they're different. Is it discretion? Is it privacy? Is yeah. it privacy is super important, discretion. And what I told you, you know, it's just being truthful and not be wanting to waste anyone's time, you know. And they appreciate honesty, you know. They don't like to be told that the house is worth 40 and when it's worth 30, then they go through six months of waste of time to find that out. They don't appreciate that. So I might lose some listings by saying people that are not worth that. And I might piss off some people, but I think for the most part, they appreciate the mm -hmm. honest part of that. So tell me, how do you feel you differentiate from the competition? And this could be individual agents or mm -hmm. we'll get into the agency in a little bit, but mm -hmm. what are some of the things... If someone were to say to you, you know, I'm interviewing X, Y, and Z, what's different about you? Yeah. Well, I think the value play and what I bring to the table is me. I think the difference between everybody else and me is that is me. And I know it sounds funny, but that's the reality. So it's a personal relationship business and you enter into a relationship with a client and you're going to be talking to that person and you're going to enter a relationship with your emailing, texting, talking, calling. So I think that any buyer seller first need to find that person someone that they can get along 
that there is chemistry and there can be a relationship. That's to me the key, most important thing. Obviously backing that up with knowledge on the market and knowledge on your craft is super important. So I do know the market very well and I've been doing this for 15 years now. So, you know, they say that you become an expert on what you do after 10 years on any craft. So I think that me being me, I bring the value of who Santiago is and what comes with it. Hard work, showing up on time and the experience and the expertise, not only in the real estate and the numbers and the values, but also bring my builder background where I can understand sites, land. That's why I sell a lot of land. And that's why I work with a lot of developers, you know, have a very good understanding of what the consumer wants and what the trends are and how they change and how fast they change. So I think that's what the difference is, you know, I think everybody is different and everybody brings different things on the table. And that's what I bring on the table. Awesome. I think you're a case study, Santiago, in sort of the slow and steady wins the race. You know, in today's world we live in, this connected economy, everyone's looking for shortcuts, quick fixes, you know, instant success. Mm -hmm. um, and your story exemplifies, you know, slow and steady, you know showing up, good times, bad times, making hard decisions and building a brand and a reputation that precedes you. So going back to your Santa Barbara big right. sale, you know, it was you that made the difference, you know, but it's also what you bring beside you, which is this sort of network and this presence and energy that magnetizes good things, yeah. you know? And that's why I exercise a lot, you know, I mean, I do these seminars when I speak and uh, agents want to find out what the secret is, right? And uh, <laughs> I always tell people, you can be 100% of the best of yourself if you're not giving 100% to yourself. So if I don't wake up at 5 in the morning and meditate for half an hour and then go to the gym at 5.30 until 7 and I don't have breakfast with my kids and take them to school, I can show up to work being me. Yeah. So when I go to that first appointment or when I go to that last appointment of the day, the reason that I carry the energy the aura, the whatever you want to call it, when I show up in that door, they feel the difference. They feel that energy. They feel that someone that show up there being there, yeah. present, happy on top of that. And then when you back that up with knowledge and expertise, then, you know, people really relate to that. So when I talk to these agents, they all want to know the secret, you know, it's like, what's the secret? What's the secret? I'm like, look, I want to tell you exactly what I do every day when I wake up, what I do, how many calls I make, what I did in the beginning, everything. The execution is when everybody drops the ball. And I think it's yeah. not just in real estate, it's in any Everything. business in the world. Everybody wants the fast and they drop the ball. So I'll tell you the secret right now, when I'm speaking in a room with two, 300 people, and I said, I can guarantee you that we will meet in three months again. I can bet money that there's a handful of people there actually doing it. All the other 350 or 295 or whatever it is, they just drop the ball, you know? It's that execution, it's actually doing, it's a schedule. And if you don't schedule it, it's not real, like Tony Robbins says, right? Mm -hmm. You need to schedule it. So that's what my opinion is. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's a common thread. I have the unique sort of luxury of, in my position, of dealing with the Santiago's <laughs> primarily, because our business Thank model you. is built on the 80-20 rule, right? Very powerful. 20% of X are responsible for 80% of the output, right? Why? In luxury real estate, it's probably 90-10 right? 85, 15. And there's a common thread within the 15 or the 10, a common thread. And everyone's trying to figure out what the secret is. Like it's some single component or item or tactic, you know, and it's not. It's slow and steady and it's brand and building, you know, a reputation that precedes you and has a, you know, a magnetizing effect where people seek you out versus finding you, you know, mm -hmm. trying to be found. 
So let's talk about the real estate industry, which hasn't changed much in 10 years, right? Uh, cue, cue laughter a now. <laughs> cue a little laughter bit. track. Just a little <laughs> bit. Yes, I mean, as we were discussing earlier, I think that after the crisis or the recession in 2008, 2009, I think the turning point was April 2012. I think in April 2012, like everybody felt confident enough that things were turning around. We started in this amazing race up since then until about where Six we are now. Six year yeah. solid run, yep. Yeah, it's been an amazing race. It's been incredible for Los Angeles, I think. I think it's incredible for the people that live in Los Angeles and their owners of properties. The Los Angeles city has changed from what has always been known as LA, Hollywood, Disneyland, great place. Let's go back to our countries. Where New York, Hong Kong, London were the capitals of the world at the time. We finally, in the last five, four years, because of what happened here, LA has become now a capital of the world. Now LA is a place where the wealthiest people in the world, the wealthiest yeah. investors of the world, have already turned their eyes towards, and they want to own real estate, they want to invest here, or they want to open businesses here. Besides that, you pay most amount of taxes than anywhere else, they still want to be here. Yeah. And the reasons why they want to be here are that, because it's becoming the hub, it's becoming the Rome of the times of Rome, and, and, uh, and there's only one here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's and, only one Malibu. And the weather. And one, yeah. And right? The, yeah. And the prices compared to all those main cities that I just mentioned, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, are still a lot lower than where they're there. And uh, you can get a lot more for your back. So all these people are moving here. I mean, the fundamentals are so strong uh, that that's why sustaining this market in the way it is longer than what everybody expected. Uh, the cycles you know, might be changing, you know. It used to be every certain amount of years, seven years. Now it might be a longer cycle. Maybe the cycle prolongs more. So what about the ultra? I mean, it's gotten a little bit frothy in some areas. Mm -hmm. So in particular, like South Bay, Manhattan Beach has gotten pretty frothy. Mm -hmm. And then you've got all this development, all this new, the spec stuff in Beverly Hills, you know, mm -hmm. we have that, you know, there's a billion dollar land listing now, right? A billion dollars. Stupid. But it's off market now. That's not going to sell. And what was the other one? Like 500 million? Yeah, the, 500. the spec house. So we'll look. I mean, there's different ways to look at it. I mean, the market is, personally, I think the market's strong right now. The market's strong for sellers that are sellers. They have good product and they are priced well. The market's not strong for the people that are delusional and they're putting prices that just not going to happen. And the problem is that, you know, like the Sunset Strip is to be more specific. I mean, I knew about three years ago that that was going to be the place that's going to hit first. And the reason is because there's one guy that, you know, very young guy that bought a property for 75 million, the Minecraft owner, and that was 3,500 a foot, I think. And all these people thought that that's going to be the norm. I mean, you can't go by one sale. So the, all these developers went and started buying properties for land values that they were unreal, expecting to have these prices and they all hit the market. There were 85 permits pulled back three years ago for new construction in one area. Wow. So what's going to happen when you bring all those properties in the market and they're all expecting the same numbers and they all look the same and they're all brand new. And there's not that many buyers really that they're going to buy all at the same time. So what happens is one of those two, three, five of those guys can afford to go down and it's going to bring everybody down. 
So what the consumer looks at, oh, the prices are going down, the way how they interpret it is like, oh, the price is going down, the market's going down, this is the bubble, blah, 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 blah. Well, the reality is like that's a perception, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Well, we're listing properties in Brentwood Park for 20 million and they're selling you know, multiple offers in two days. So that kind of shows you that it's very area specific. Yes, I think the market is softening. I think that it's probably going to start softening a little bit more, but there is still a number of buyers that want to live here. The amount of families that I sold houses in the last two years to people from New York, Chicago, Boston, London. There are people that are moving not just their families, but their business to LA. I mean, you have Peter Jackson opening the museum here. You have the Ram Stadium now. You have the LAFC Stadium that is amazing. And there's so many fundamentals like downtown is on fire. The Sunset Strip, all the buildings, the House of Blues is going to be an amazing building in there. You have, you know, the Edition Hotel that sold out. They only have one left and they sold for over $2,000, $2,500 a foot. You know, condos that has never happened before it's finished. It's not even finished. It's sold out. That never happened in LA before. That's a model that works in the East Coast. In New York, you pre-sell. In Miami, you pre-sell. In LA, it's never worked and now it's starting to work. So all those fundamentals kind of give me peace of mind that, you know, yeah. things are going to be right. But people don't go with crazy because now technology has gotten people to have access and be more aware of what happens. They can go on their phone, they can go to Redfin, Truly, Azilla, all those user-friendly sites, and they can know what the comps are, what things are selling. So when you overprice a property, they know it and they don't pay attention. They put it in the back burner, they put it in the back burner and they forget about it. And then you need to do a major price reduction to become you know, and the awareness of people again, so. Yeah, and you like, how do you price some of these new developments? Like, what's your CMA? You bring it in like, uh, you know? Yeah. Perception is reality for sure. And it's almost created this false market when like the Minecraft guy comes in, mm -hmm. he wants what he wants and he's gonna pay whatever yeah. he wants. That's it. That's not a market price reality. That's his reality, his now, value. If I have 10 of those, they'll right. be a whole different story. Yeah, right, right. You know what I mean? So it's happening everywhere where, you know, there's only one Manhattan Beach or these lifestyles that living here afford right and people are going to pay what they think is the value you know, right. to them so yeah it's changing so let me ask you let me get into some tactical because like i view you as like your knowledge and your expertise is you know if you had an hourly rate or a day rate it should be off the charts <laughs> in terms of what you could charge for your intel into the market so what would you give like a seller today like let's talk about in brentwood what would be the best advice you would give a seller today? The best advice you can give a seller is just to listen to the advice of a knowledgeable agent and price well. Pricing is the key element because it's been proven that every time you overprice a property and stop selling for less than what you could have sold it if you were to price it right from the beginning. So price, price, price. Just make sure that you are pricing the property well. Don't overprice it. You cannot really leave money on the table. People are very knowledgeable and aware of what the values are. When you come a little lower, it's going to adjust up. One, two more people are going to jump in on it. So you have better chances of selling something for more when you actually go lower than higher. Right. Skipping around a little bit, the international, you know, investment and money, is that starting to taper off a bit? No, no, it's not. I met with a gentleman last week here that is ready to bring billions. I mean, from London, from Singapore, from China, they want to invest major, major, major commercial. What do you think the percentage of overall investment or transaction volume is internationally, like on the West I Side? I don't have an answer for that. You don't? Okay. No. It's probably pretty high though, higher than people think? Yeah, it's high. Yeah. All right, so I wanna talk about the industry consolidation that's happening. Uh -huh. It's gotten crazy with Compass, you know, all this investment, all these acquisitions, everyone, especially on the West Side and these really high-end markets are jostling, positioning, recruiting. What are your thoughts? 
My thoughts are like, that's not very different to what happened before. I mean, companies have been buying companies in the real estate for many years. I mean, like, you know, what happened with Fred Sands, what happened with Douglas. And I mean, it's just, it's happened, you know? I mean, like, I don't see this being anything other than what's been happening always. Bigger companies obtaining smaller companies. I think that everybody has to choose where they want to be. And if you want to be part of a big conglomerate of agents where there is not really the culture that we have here at the agency, that might be for you. You know, you go there, you have, you know, a big company that is value at a ridiculous number. And that's fantastic. Or if your style is more dealing with less people and feel like you have a family and you have a smaller culture where everybody really cares about each other and want to be more of a boutique company, that's great. So I think the space for everybody. I think that's just different business models. I think that it's actually great to coexist with someone like Compass. For us, it's great. You know, whatever Compass is, we want to be. And we want to be that boutique company, smaller, high-end market, and they can be whatever they want to be. What's new with the agency? What are you guys working on or, or planning? Well, we're expanding. Our expansion is definitely new. I mean, our newest office just launched this weekend in South Florida and Boca Raton. We're going to be going to Miami. We're about to open an office in Dallas and Austin. We just opened three offices in San Francisco. We opened in Canada, in Victoria, and in Victoria Islands called British Columbia. We have Caribbean. We have all the offices here in LA. About 27 offices, I think now. Wow. So expansion is next for us. You guys have grown so fast. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. What do you think about this iBuyer thing? Where do you see this going? I think it's going to be interesting to see. I don't necessarily think that that applies to the Los Angeles market, especially in the high end. I feel that with all this iBuyer, with all this AI that is going to happen, the world, I think, is going to change to certain degrees. I think that there's jobs that they're going to be replaced by computers, artificial intelligence. But I think that actually that's when experiences are going to become more valuable that you cannot buy. And then you need that personal relationship with someone that you can talk to when you're selling a high-end home. I just have a hard time believing that someone's going to sell a $20 million house, $10 million house through a computer. So, I mean, people want to make sure that you qualify in that buyer, that who the guy is, that has the money, you know, like all those things that sometimes computers can replace that, you know? Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future, but that doesn't concern me one bit on what I do. So, fun question. Do you and Mauricio and Billy have a side bet who's going to sell more each year? You bet a buck? <laughs> no, we don't have a side bet. I think that kind of we all go in our own and do our own thing. We work different markets, you know? They work more the Beverly Hills areas. I work west to the 405. Uh, no, I don't think there's a side bet. <laughs> but good idea. That'd be fun. With them today. Yeah. Be very fun. Yeah. Let's talk in terms of closing thoughts. What do you do for fun? What I do for fun? I mean, my fun is being with my family. I'm out every day of the week, working, dealing with people, meeting people. So when the weekend comes, it's a really good place for me to really relax. That's one thing that with my wife, we sometimes like, I go Friday nights, what do you want to do? I'm like, oh, let's just stay home. Let's relax, let's barbecue. And she's like, I'm being home the whole week. Let's go out. I'm like, okay, so we need to compromise a little bit. But truly being with my family and my closest friends is what my fun is. Travel, I like to travel too. And where do you like to travel? I like Italy. Italy is my favorite place so far in the world. I like going to Italy. Nice, nice. What's something that people would be surprised to know about you? I mean, people have been surprised that I'm actually a good cook. Like when I invite clients or friends to the house and I cook, they're surprised that I was actually able to cook. What do you like to cook? Uh, anything that is grilled. I love grilling. I do pastas. I do a number of different things and Bolivian dishes. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Good stuff.
So thank you, Santiago, for spending the time with us to learn about your incredible journey in real estate. And I think our audience will get some insight into you as a person and into what you bring to the table representing buyers and sellers. So continued success to you, and we'll look forward to talking and seeing you soon. Thank you so much again. I'll look forward to see you, and I hope that people find some value on what we just discussed right now. Definitely. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time. Thank you to our sponsor, Bow Concepts.